Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of Relationship Radio. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing itstartswithattraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to itstartswithattraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. So what is on your mind about love? People define it different ways. As a matter of fact, in the social sciences, it's a very difficult thing to define. One of the leading experts talking about love is Dr. Robert Sternberg. He actually edited a book several years ago where he invited other scholars, researchers, social scientists, and the like to discuss the subject of love based on how they understand it, how they would measure it, and etc. One of the chapters was as his method called the triangulation of love, and then the other chapters about other people. The reason that you can find so many of those kinds of books out there and such research is because the word love in the English language as used by American people covers so many different topics. We can talk about loving the person that we are romantically involved with. We can talk about loving our children. We can talk about loving our parents, loving our pets, loving the car that we drive, loving apple pie. And the word love then just covers so many different meanings that it's very difficult to understand it. So that several years ago, a professor at Augusta State University said, love is a feeling you feel when you feel you're feeling a feeling you never uh, never felt before. Let me see if I can try that one more time without stuttering through it. He said, love is a feeling you feel when you feel you're feeling a feeling you never felt before. I was a very young man when I heard that. And I thought it was so profound. And I actually quoted it many times until I started thinking about all the things I felt for the first time that certainly were not love, like being shocked electrically, those kinds of things. Yet it sounded good, and so I quoted it for a while. So what is love, really? Well, if we look at it in the terms of how Sternberg defines it, oh, and by the way, I hope that this program is one where we interact with each other. I see that we have several callers out there already. I think we'll have more callers as we go along. And if you would like to talk to me about the subject of love or ask specific questions about situations that you are in or have been in or think you may be going to be in, then you can call us at 646-378-0424. That is 646-378-0424. And if you wish to speak with me, you need to press the number one. That gives a little signal that says you're out there, not just listening on your phone, but that you would like to talk to me as well. And in just a few minutes, that's what I want to do with this program. I actually want to make it a conversation where we talk back and forth. But when Sternberg defines love, particularly when it's a relationship between like a man and a woman, you know, the romantic kind of love we think about, and trying to measure that, he came up with three of the subcomponents that comprise that love. And that's why he called it the triangulation of love use that when we try to talk about love. He said that one of the three components of love, in the sense we're talking about, is commitment. Understand that the commitment here would be defined in doing whatever it takes to keep the relationship alive. And you might be thinking, well, is there a kind of love that's just commitment? Hmm, That's a good question. I'll get back to that in just a minute. Another part of love he calls intimacy, 
which has to do with openness and vulnerability and transparency, letting the other person see inside of you, or if we were to say it slower, into me, see. And if two people are reciprocating like that, where they're being open and transparent and vulnerable to each other, revealing things that they might actually be rejected for, but instead of being rejected, they're accepted, that level of intimacy is a great component of love. And the third aspect that Sternberg listed is called passion. Now, while that has a sexual dimension, in the way that Sternberg looks at it, it actually is a craving for oneness. This unity that you want to have so that if you see a beautiful sunset and you think, boy, I wish that blank was here to see that with me. In my case, it would be my wife, Alice, that I love dearly. I wish Alice were here to see this with me because she loves the sunsets. That's the kind of thing he's talking about when he says passion, a craving for oneness, missing the other person when he or she is out of the room, thinking about them when you're not with them, not constantly, not obsessively, but that person has become a real part of your life. Now, we could break those down into much deeper things, if you wish, although I don't plan to do that here unless somebody asks me to. We could, for example, take commitment, and we can break commitment down into at least 10 different factors there. But that gets a little too complicated for a program like this. So let's just say if a person has a high level of commitment and intimacy and passion for another person, then we would call that having the kind of love that exists between two people. We want that. Not everybody on the planet wants it. There are some people who are quite happy just being by themselves, as you understand, and really don't want to have a relationship with anybody. But most of us, as a matter of fact, I would say the vast, vast majority of us truly want a loving relationship. And in that loving relationship, we want to be able to know that this person is committed to me as I am committed to him or her, that this person is being open and transparent and vulnerable to me as I can be to him or her, and that this person thinks about me, wants to be with me, has this craving for oneness in life, thinking about us as a team, and I feel the same way about her. So in that situation, we're talking about love. Now, if I wanted to break it down further, which I really don't, I'd rather talk to you tonight and take your questions. But if I were to break it down further, I could tell you that from those three components, the commitment, the intimacy, and the passion, we can actually, from the combinations thereof, come up with at least eight different kinds of love that we can explain just with Sternberg's model. For example, and I'm not going into them in great detail, what if you had little to no passion or commitment or intimacy for another person? We'd call that non-love. Now, you might still have love in the sense of you love humanity, but it wouldn't be love in the sense of I want to spend the rest of my life with this other person. If you had just intimacy, but without passion and without commitment, we'd call that liking. You know, I like you and that feels good. I hope that you, don't, that you like me. But liking doesn't necessarily carry you to where you want to be. And so all three of these components become important. So that many, many years ago, I mean, this was a long time ago, back when Lionel Richie was still at the top of the charts back in those days in the 80s, I heard him being interviewed about writing songs. And I can't remember the exact wording. It's been far too long. But the gist of it, I thought, was fascinating. He said, if you want to write a hit song, base it about love. And then he basically broke that down into three components. People who want to be in love, or at least want you to be in love with them, people who are very ecstatic about the love that they're in, that would be the second category, or people who are longing for the love that they lost. 
And if you start thinking about the popular songs of your era, the ones that you can just give me the words to right off the top, you know, that fast, you can tell me, hey, this song or that song, I'll guarantee you, you can think about any of those. If you go back to when I was a teenager, for example, there was a song by The Temptations where a guy was looking for any sign of love from the gal. And the song was called It's Just My Imagination. In other words, she didn't really love him, but he wanted it to be there and was looking for it all the time. Or again, back in that same era when I was a teenager, when Roy Oberson was thinking about this pretty woman, the kind he'd like to meet, but she was walking away from him. Or even even some of the bossa nova music, like uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim. Actually, it is pronounced that way. Jobim, that's his last name, J-O-B-I-M. Antonio Carlos Jobim, the girl from Ipanema. Again, a song about wanting to be loved by a particular person. And then you read, and you know all the great songs out there about the people who feel loved. Like that one great line from a song in the 80s, when my soul was in the lost and found, you came to claim it. And then songs like Your Love is Lifting Me Higher. Or the song that Elvis sang about the wonder of you. When he was singing about when no one understands me, when everything I do is wrong, you give me hope and consolation. You give me strength to carry on. I'll never know the reason why you love me as you do. That's the wonder, the wonder of you. Uh, but then there are those other songs about having loved and that other person not loving you anymore and the hurt, the pain, the misery you feel wanting that person to love you again, but he or she, for whatever reason, is not loving you. And it goes across the gamut from every kind of song you can think about, even like oh, in the old country music. Back in the old days, George Jones, the song he sang about, he stopped loving her today, which was a song about the fact that when finally he died, he quit expecting her to come back. All the way through the great popular songs, the rock and roll songs, the songs of the great era from people like Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett and all those kinds of people. You see, love is a major topic, and it's what we like to think about. We want to talk about love. We want to be loved. We want to feel love. Now, I don't know which of those three categories you're in right now, but my guess is that you're in one of those three. Either you're in love with someone who has never indicated his or her love for you, and you wish that he or she did love you, and you were thinking, man, is there some magic formula? Is there something I can do that will cause him or her to fall in love with me, to see how much I love and hopefully reciprocate that and love me in that way? Or perhaps you're in the second category, which is uh, I am deeply in love, and he or she is deeply in love with me. And it just feels so wonderful. It's amazing. I love this love that we have for each other. And I want it to last like this for the rest of my life. Or it might be that you're in that third category where it is we used to be in love. But now he says he no longer loves me. Or she says she no longer loves me. Or, or maybe says it in a different kind of way like, well, I, I love you, but I'm no longer in love with you meaning I don't feel that romantic feeling for you any longer. And often in those situations, not always, but often in those situations, then that person is now in, quote, in love, end quote, with someone else, which makes the pain even that much deeper. 
Like, not only have you abandoned me, I have been in love with you. I am in love with you. I always want to be in love with you. Not only have you abandoned me, but you have now given that love to someone else. And so you have left me for that. And the pain is unbearable. Can't you love me again? What we do, and what we would call my day job, where I work for at Marriage Helper, which is a 501c3 nonprofit centered in Tennessee, but working all across America and working with couples actually all around the world, we mostly see people in that third category. People who are saying, I, I wish my spouse were now in love with me, but he or she no longer is. Or even the next step, my spouse says that he or she is in love with someone else. And we've talked about the kinds of loves that go with that. And we have particularly talked about a, a specific kind of, quote, love, end quote, that goes with that called limerence, L-I-M-E-R-E-N-C-E. And limerence, and limerence is sometimes hard to distinguish from the early stages of what we might call normative love. You say normative love? Just allow me to use that phrase if I may. In other words, a love where that you really are beginning a relationship that's going to develop and deepen and grow and can indeed last a lifetime. That's what I'm calling normative love. And the initial stages of that sometimes can look like this other kind of quote, love, end quote, that we call limerence because of the ecstasy, because of the almost obsessive thinking about the other person. And yet we talk about limerence when we do that kind of love in this way. The difference between it and normative love is that normative love is going to develop into a deeper love. It's not going to be as ecstatic, but it's going to have the characteristics that Sternberg talks about, where it's going to have a strong level of commitment, where it's going to have a strong level of intimacy, openness, transparency, honesty, all those kinds of things, and a strong level of passion where that you have this craving to be with the other person, a craving for oneness, if you will. And if you're listening right now and thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa. If my spouse has left me for another person, and now he's saying he is in love with that other person, that's fully what my spouse expects to happen. That is going to grow into the kind of normative love that you just described. Yes and no. They do think if they're leaving you because they feel limerence toward another person, they do think this is something that's going to last a lifetime, but they're not thinking about it calming down. What I mean by that is that, that the initial stages of normative love, if it has that ecstasy and some degree of obsessive thinking, it actually expects it at some point to diminish. In other words, that I know we're not going to feel like that every day for the rest of our lives, but this is what has brought us together. And we're going to grow this into this deeply rooted normative love that can actually keep people together for a lifetime. Whereas people in limerence tend to think, oh, it's going to be this kind of ecstasy forever. The intensity of these emotions. And, and limerent love always presents some kind of a problem. Now, can two people who start with that kind of ecstasy, if they're both single, wind up married to each other and develop a normative love? The answer is yes. But you say, okay, but, but what about my spouse? If he or she's leaving me and feels that towards someone else right now, could that potentially happen with him or her? And the answer is yes, but not likely. 
Because you see, the difference here is when a person has these kind of emotions that come in and disrupt an existing relationship. Now, they may uh, start vilifying you. They may start rewriting history, and they may decide that they've never been in love with you. But let's just say that all of that stuff is just their way of rationalizing and dealing with things, and that indeed they did have a loving relationship with you. I don't mean one that was perfect, because there is no such thing between two human beings. But if that person loved you, and then this other relationship came in and intervened, and all of a sudden it becomes this ecstasy toward the other person, this, this thinking things about him or her like, that are uh, halo effects, like this person is perfect, this person has no flaws, where that you wind up being vilified because there has to be some kind of justification for leaving you, where history gets rewritten, where there's little to no memory of the good times with you. Understand that that's not part of the beginning of normative love, which can be ecstatic and which can be intense and feel like ecstasy. But it's not a love that's existing primarily on a lot of things that just aren't true. Whereas the limerence, if the limerence exists after you're in love with somebody else. So here I am married to Alice and I wind up being involved with Sally Sue and wind up in limerence with her. It's not going to be the beginning of that normative love in all likelihood. Is it possible? I've already said yes, it is, but it's highly unlikely. And if you're asking why, it's because now this one is costing me things. And even though I may convince myself that I never had been in love with Alice, I rewrite all the history. Even if I vilify Alice and and, and my mind make her the most evil person that ever lived, there's still a part of me down deep that knows that's not true, even if I refuse to acknowledge it. And so at some point, at some point now, I'm going to be giving up my marriage for Sally Sue. So that's one thing I lose. I'm not going to have the same relationship with my children I had before. If children are involved, that's another thing that I wind up losing. And there's even more that I wind up losing. And so quite often, it never does develop into a normative love. As a matter of fact, very seldom when it destroys one relationship, does it lead to a normative love in the second relationship? Yes, I've already said it can but most of the time it will not. The vast majority of the time it will not. Because when that ecstatic part begins to wear away, when the halo effect starts to go away, when you can finally see the other person for who and what he or she really is, which means a flawed human being, because everybody is, and you begin to then realize what you have given up for that relationship, such as a marriage, such as the kind of relationship you have with your children, such as your spirituality, for example, the relationship you had with God as you understand him, and so forth and so on, then often this one falls apart because it was primarily about the intensity of that emotion. It was not about this deeply rooted thing that's growing and developing that's going to last a lifetime. Yes, you think it's going to last a lifetime, but only because of the ecstasy, and you think it's always going to feel like this. It's going to be absolutely amazing. And when that amazing part finally ends, because it always does, that's when things change. And that's why most of those relationships, as a matter of fact, the vast, vast majority of those relationships wind up falling apart. Now, I really don't want to do this program about limerence. I really want to talk more about love. And so, as I said, we've said several callers out there. Interestingly, nobody has indicated that they would like to speak with me. And so I can go on lecturing about love for a while, but that's not really what I want to do on this program. And so I'm saying, if you're one of the callers out there, then if you'll press the number one, 
it will signify to me that you want to talk to me. So if you have a question about your relationship, if you have a question about love, if you have a question about anything having to do with relationships like this, then that's what I'd like for this program to be about. But I can't talk to you <laughs> until you press that number one. Now, if you're trying to press the number one right now and it's not coming through, it may be because you were on for so long that you passed your opportunity to press that number and to get online with me, which means that you might, I don't know exactly how the software all works, but it means that you might have to hang up, call back again at 646-378-0424. That's 646-378-0424. And when you hear that opening menu, then you press the number one and it will indicate to me that you would like to talk to me. And I'd love to hear your questions, or I'd love to hear your comments. I'd love to hear your understandings of what love would be, because I really want to make this program about you, if we possibly can, and not just about me rambling on and on about my understanding of love. Now, okay, we have an 860 area code. I think that's up in Connecticut. Hello, 860. You're on the Dr. Joe Show. Hello, Dr. Beam. Um, I am part of your Save the Mayor um, my marriage um, online program. I'm doing it by myself, and my uh, spouse is currently having an affair and is not willing to work on our marriage. He moved out about five months ago, and um, and I'm very grateful for your program and the online support as well as with the um, the community, the Facebook group. Um, my question is, uh, my spouse really seems to be in a, what I believe is probably a state of limerence, but I'm not sure. Uh, because okay, let me, let me make sure I heard that. You believe your spouse is, is what now? I didn't quite catch that. Is, is experiencing limerence, is in a limerence relationship with the other woman. Um, but as you described, these three subcomponents of love, uh, commitment, int- intimacy, and passion, this is you know, I can say honestly that we don't have that at this point because mm-hmm. we, you know, he's moved out, and uh, it's from what he describes to me, he certainly has that with this other woman. So I guess mm-hmm. what I'm wondering is, uh, you know, at what point do we know, or is there a way of understanding or knowing if, if um, they are experiencing true love or not with the other person? Uh, mm-hmm. And if so, right now, currently, he's home in our house almost every day and um, to see the children, but it's only to see the children, and it's not mm-hmm. to see me. So, you know, I'm I'm just not sure if I'm helping things by being, you know, almost codependent in his behavior uh, mm-hmm. or if, if it's something that... I need to be doing, you know, things a little bit differently. I'm, I'm trying to create a safe space for him at the same time. He's not really budging. He doesn't quite yet want a divorce. He's not ready mm-hmm. to make that commitment. At the same time, he's told me without any reservations, you know, she, I'm always going to want to be with her. It's not fair to you um, mm-hmm. for me to, to try to try to move our relationship forward. We have not gone to any counseling or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, And if if you said this, I didn't catch it. So let me ask, how long has he been involved with her? It's been one year. Okay, one year. Let me go back and answer. They've known each other for 15 years. Okay, but this relationship has existed for about a year. 
Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, you brought up a really good point, and, and thank you for doing so. Um, when you say, okay, you mentioned Sternberg's model of commitment, passion, and intimacy, and this is what he says he feels about her, which means that he would believe he's really very much in love with her. And the answer to that is you're right. He would. You see, if we were going to use Stern, and actually, believe it or not, Sternberg has developed a test where we can measure the degree of your commitment. We can measure the degree of your intimacy and measure the degree of your passion. And by doing that, come up with this triangle. And this triangle indicates the, uh, the intensity of the love you feel toward the other person. We can do that with a couple, for example. We could do that with you and your husband and then overlay those two triangles and by overlaying the two triangles, actually see where you view love differently. Now, let me move from that into talking about the fact that he would probably, in all likelihood, say those are the things that he feels about her. Having been a person who was in Limerence many years ago, who did divorce my wife, uh, Alice, so that I could go be with my L.O., my Limerent object, which, as is almost always the case, did not work out failed. And uh, years later, a few years later, I asked Alice if she would consider taking me back. And she did. And we remarried. And in a couple of months, it'll be 30 years since we remarried. So speaking both from having read a ton of the research, also speaking from having worked with literally thousands of couples in this situation, and from my own experience, I could say if you had tested me at that time, and I never say the other woman's name just because some people know her. So I just always call her Sally Sue. If you would have tested me at that time on Sternberg's triangular model, then I would have rated very high on commitment and passion and intimacy with Sally Sue. And if we just took that one measurement, that one rating, you'd say, wow, then you are very much in love with her. But what I was feeling was not necessarily accurate because even though there was a high level of intimacy, what I mean by that openness, transparency, vulnerability, it was also colored by the fact that the halo effect was going on, which is often the case. As a matter of fact, almost always the case in Lawrence, the halo effect is that she could see none of my flaws and I could see none of her flaws. And if anybody tried to point out my flaws to her, she just, no, 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 you don't understand. Or point out her flaws to me, it's like you don't understand. And so that level of intimacy and the testing, each of us would have rated really, really high, but it was a skewed test because of the fact that our openness and transparency and vulnerability was only about things that were positive. And we refused, not, not because we consciously did it, it's just part of what's happening in limerence. We refused to see the negative part of it. And so if you really want to measure love, you know, commitment, intimacy, passion, the intimacy would be openness and transparency and vulnerability, not just about the good things you want to see, but about everything and knowing that the other person truly is flawed. There is no Prince Charming. There is no Cinderella. We are all flawed. And so while a person in limerence probably would rate very high on that scale in the short term, if we were to give them that same test over a period of time, like, eh, like every six months or maybe every year, let's give that test to you again a year and another test a year. If it's limerence, then what's going to happen is that at some point it's going to start breaking down. 
And while it might have measured at, at the one-year mark as, wow, yeah, according to Sternberg's model, this is great love, at the two-year mark or the three-year mark, if it went that far, you understand it doesn't always last that long, those numbers would change quite a bit. So that Sally Sue, who was committed to me and would never leave me and would spend, spend the rest of her life with me, did leave me. And since I referred earlier to some of the popular songs that talk about love, there's even a song about that. If you're a Bob Seger fan, you might remember the song he sang called Against the Wind. And he talked about her, the queen of his night, lying in the radio, lying in the night with the radio playing low, all those kinds of things, and how she swore that it never would end. And then he goes on to sing that same song, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then, which was that it would end. And so even the, the popular songs catch on to this idea because it's part of what happens. The commitment in limerence is not going to be a long-lived commitment. Part of the reason for that, again, is because of all of the things that you're doing that are in contradiction to your belief and value system by leaving one marriage and going to this. Another, pardon me, I had a little allergy problem there. Another is that because of the halo effect, you're not actually seeing the other person as he or she really is, and therefore your commitment is more to a fantasy ideal than it is to a person who exists in reality. And so, yes, on that first part of yours, yeah, I imagine if we tested him right now, he probably would test very high on love. But it doesn't mean it's a long-lived love. It doesn't mean that it will be the same test down the road. Whereas this other kind of love I've been talking about called normative love might fluctuate a little bit over the years, but it's going to be relatively strong and actually growing over time. So since we're illustrating with me, when Alice and I first remarried, 30 years ago, uh, I wouldn't have rated very high on my love for her on that Sternberg scale, nor would she have rated high for me. Why? Because we didn't remarry each other because we had, quote, fallen in love with each other, quote, unquote, again. We married each other because we decided it was the best thing to do for our children. But then we learned how to be in love with each other. And so now, even 30 years later, if you were to test my love for Alice, then it would rate very high on all of those things, commitment, passion, and intimacy. This passion, not much as it would be when I was much younger about sex, but the passion part about craving for oneness, wanting to share my life with her, wanting to, to see things, do things with each other. And that stays consistently strong year after year. All right, I went a long time on that, so let's see if I can summarize it succinctly and make a point. Yes, people in limerence probably will score high on the Sternberg Triangle, but... It's a short-term score. It's not indicative of what they're going to be feeling down the road. Whereas in the more normative kind of love we talk about that really has roots where you don't have to violate your belief and values by divorcing one spouse to go be with this other person, by violating uh, spiritual beliefs and religious beliefs and all those other kinds of things, then that's the difference in the two. Now, that was the first part of your question. I got so <laughs> involved in answering that. I'm sorry, I forgot the second part of your question. Can you help me with that again? I guess I was asking uh, how I'm able to tell if I can, um, if it's real love. I mean, I believe that they're, they are not just sharing the positive things about their lives, but also, um, you know, the difficulties. So when you talk about the halo effect, if they, you know, is that 
necessary for it to be limerence as opposed to uh, true intimate love. And if so, you know, mm-hmm. I guess I'm just no, trying halo. to figure out really okay. love or... <laughs> I got you. I understand. The halo effect almost always is a part of limerence. But notice I said mm-hmm. almost always. It's not always. And there is a difference in sharing difficulties and seeing the other person as he or she really is. For example, if a couple, well, I'll go back to, to me involved with Sally Sue all those years ago when I was married to Alice. The obstacles and difficulties and struggles that came actually pushed us closer together. But it was not because we were seeing each other's flaws. It's because that, those, that, that, um, that difficulty, the distress, the difficulties in life we were facing still had nothing to do with her seeing flaws within me and my seeing flaws within her. And so external things that appear to be trying to pull you apart can actually push you together. Yes, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. But that's still not the halo effect. The halo effect has to do with, I'm not seeing you for who you really are. And the kinds of stories we hear, for example, like, wow, you know, this woman has slept with 13 other guys and destroyed 12 other marriages, but my husband can't see it. Now, I'm not just making that up. We hear those kinds of things all the time. So the fact that they're facing difficulty together still doesn't mean there's no halo effect. Now, I think what I'm understanding you're saying here is that we're looking for the bottom line of saying, is he really in a kind of love with her that's normative, that's going to last a lifetime, and I'm just wasting my time hoping that he'll come back? Is that the question, the bottom line question yeah. you're really asking? Yeah. yeah. Okay. No one on the planet can answer that question. Not even him. Let me explain why. Because limerence is not always exactly the same with every person. It's like everything else on the planet. I mean, if I get the flu and you get the flu, there's going to be a little bit of difference in them. And so for any human being to look at another and say, okay, I know this is limerence, and I know that you're three-fourths of the way through stage two, and within a month you're going to be well into stage three, it's an impossibility, not just for the observer, who hopefully is, you know, not prejudiced, but also for the person who in it who is. Because the person who is in it is not seeing it objectively. They're seeing it totally subjectively. And so none of us can tell you the answer to that question, like this is going to be a normative love that's going to last forever. Therefore, you're being foolish to even think about it. While I know that that's a concern of yours, and I certainly understand it, I certainly do. My suggestion, if you will, is if you believe at heart that this is a good man, and you believe that at heart what he is doing is contradictory to his belief and value system. Is it, by the way, contradictory to his belief and value system? Uh well, according to him, he's he's trying to do things to be very respectful of me. Um, for example, he's the one who set a lot of the boundaries by moving out, and um, well, that's mainly it, moving out. Uh, and you know, he initiated no touching with me or anything like that. Right. So okay. but uh, that's not that's not really what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, if if a year ago, two years ago, I were talking to him about people being uh, unfaithful to their spouses, people ending marriages by divorce, what would his belief and value system have been about that? Uh, well, he doesn't, I, he said, you know, 
if you would have asked me a year and a half ago if I would be here, I, you know, I would never believe it. Um, ah, okay. You know, he he is he does not believe. I think previously he did not believe in in infidelity. Uh, I think to some extent he is a child of of a divorced family, so divorce. You know, I don't think he sees it as evil. Um, but certainly infidelity, I'm sure he used to see hmm. it as, as a, a wrong. But if, if a year and a half ago he were to, it was the kind of guy who'd be saying, I would, if he's saying a year and a half ago, I never could have seen me as doing the things I'm doing now. That is an indication. It's not absolute proof, but it is an indication that what he's doing is in contradiction to his belief in value system. And yeah. if, if that's the case, if that's the case, then he's had to violate that belief in value system to do what he's doing now. Such things as I'm going to move out because I'm going to treat you with respect. I'm not going to touch you because I treat you with respect. Often those are ways for a person to keep from feeling. I can't say that exactly about your husband. I don't know him, but often those are ways for people to keep from feeling more guilt. So now mm-hmm. back to my original point then, if indeed this is in contradiction to his original belief in value system, then, yes, I believe it. <laughs> okay. Then, and you believe that Hardy's a good man, then my suggestion would be don't give up yet. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, now, it, it's your life. You have to make your own decision. But I recommend this to people if, if, if they can do it, and the emotions can be awfully tough. If you can, you hang in there. You keep doing the things. You say you're on the long, online course, so you know about doing the pies. You know about being the safe place. You know about doing all of those things. You keep doing them, and if the divorce becomes final, then you might want to move on with your life in the sense of at some point, and I wouldn't suggest that happen early at all, but at some point, perhaps, for example, you start going out again a little bit, not not trying to make him jealous, not trying to make him come back. That'll backfire on you big time. But because of the fact that you're saying, okay, I'm accepting life as it is, and I'm moving on with my life. But that if you do that, that you still, if he were to come back, have something within you to say, mm, let's give this a chance. Now, that's your decision, not mine. When do I give up on a marriage? It's when one of them marries somebody else. At that point, I give up. It's like, okay, if, if uh, you know, she's now married to Fred, I'm not going to try to help save the marriage with her, with her, with Charlie. You know, because she's now married to somebody else, I'm out of it. Or if one of them dies, obviously I'll give up then. Usually within three months, I'll give up after that thinking, okay, we're not going to be able to save that one either. I realize that humor didn't work with you, but I'll try to do it that way. So my recommendation, my suggestion is do what's best for you. Everything we teach on the course about the pies, I mean, the safe place, all those kind of things are good for you. So do what's best for you. and don't hang on to a false hope, but realize that until such time as he actually marries her or, or if God forbid he dies, there is always hope. And we've seen people come back around long after anybody thought there was any chance to do it. We've even had people come through our workshop and, and leave the workshop and go ahead and divorce. And within a year, they wind up marrying each other again and come back to the workshop and say, hey, it finally sunk in. So when do you give up hope? It's your choice. You can give up hope at any time you wish. But if you're trying to evaluate, am I 
foolish person to think that he possibly is ever going to end this with her. I'm asking you, if you will, not to think like that. And that you hang on to the hope that if he's a good man with a good heart, that at some point he finally comes to his senses and says, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. On the other hand, if he divorces you and winds up marrying her, then I would suggest that as painful as that is, you accept that that's the new reality. Is that making any sense to you at all? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Okay. And again, it's you, it's your choice. And I know I make it sound a lot easier than it is. And I apologize for that. I know it's painful. You love him and he's involved with her and he's at least doing some things respectfully. I'm glad that he is, but I don't know that it makes your pain any less, but my hope for you, my friend, is that at this good man's heart at some point convicts him and he straightens up. And that if at that time you're still willing to forgive him and take him back, if you still are, that somehow you put this back together and then you'll have this amazing story to help other people with their marriages. Thank you. Okay. You have a good evening. All right. We'll go to another caller here. And this is area code three, two, one. I didn't have time to look that up. So I'm not sure where that is. Hello, three, two, one. You're on marriage hey, radio. Thank you. How's it going? I'm doing Hi, well. Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, um, been married 27 years. Got six kids, and uh, probably October, November, my wife uh, started an affair. I assume it's just emotional, but I don't know. Um, come January, she decided she wanted to. Well, in November, we went to counseling, found out that I was mistreating her for 27 years, which I didn't know mm-hmm. before then, and. And then January, she wanted to get a divorce. And so uh, that's about the time I found the, the Save My Marriage course. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've kind of proceeded along then. We're still under the same roof. Um, interesting thing along that, though, is uh, the uh, she had the divorce paperwork all filled out about a month ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, then she stashed that up on a shelf in the closet, and it hasn't moved from there since then. And I don't know if that means anything to you or not. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the meanwhile, I'm you know I'm just working on me in, in the course and trying to be you know that that safe place for her. And uh, you know, we're able to talk occasionally, but she's very aloof. She comes home and kind of keeps to herself and away from me. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, so not a lot of love coming my way at all. Uh, you know, I can tell that she doesn't like me at all right now. I guess is really the the, the thing. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I I uh you know of course the. The rewriting of history bothers me, and I'm wondering: is uh, are there things we can do to help bring back some of that history? Because you know, we got 27 years worth of memories uh, with the kids and all, and uh, is is that, or is that manipulative, or is it viewed as manipulative to do that? Or, it can know. it can backfire in a big hurry. Yeah, I mean, just recently I, I read where a woman in one of our Facebook groups was saying, I think it was a woman, it could have been a guy, but uh, was saying that she had put together a scrapbook and of their past and given it to her husband and was hoping that he would be pleasantly surprised by it. But instead it made him really mad. And of course, the reason mm-hmm. it made him mad was because he saw it as manipulative. You're trying to force within me a feeling that I don't feel right now. So I'd be very, very careful about trying to do that. I know that it hurts. And, you know, as you said, uh, so all of a sudden I've been told that for 27 years I've been lousy, but I'm just hearing it now, not for 27 years. 
you know, right. any any person whose common objective would look at that and go, hmm, that just doesn't sound right. <laughs> because if you right. really were that lousy for 27 years, there would have been somewhere along the line where she would have said so. Now, could there be an exception to that? Oh, yeah. If you're such a mean guy and so controlling and dominating that she was terrified of you for 27 years, then, yeah, she could have gone 27 years without telling him. But are you? Are you that kind of guy? No, I don't think so. Although she she has said that I have been controlling and and yeah. uh, and manipulative, but she also had a little coaching from a, a, a divorcee that that she's uh, friends with back there. So yeah. I think that I think that kind of led her towards that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that you are not perfect because I haven't met a perfect person yet. Okay, but at the same yeah. time, you don't. You don't sound to me like a man who is mean and, and um, controlling and dominating to the point where for 27 years she'd be scared to tell you that. So if, you know, in a situation like you're in, I, I suggest the following. When she says you've been dominating or controlling or manipulating whatever, without making it sound like you want to argue, because as soon as you respond in a way that sounds argumentative, she's going to lock down. But if you, you were able to say it something like this, and of course, I don't know her, so you'd have to modify this to her personality, but something like this, like, wow, I, I certainly don't want to be that way. Uh, I don't want to argue with you, uh, and I won't try to defend myself, but can you help me by giving me an example? And I'm not going to fight with you about the example. I just want to hear what you say. And then if she does, if she actually gives you an example, don't argue with her. Now, if she gives an example, you're probably going to have one of these two reactions. One's going to be, really? <laughs> really? You thought that was controlling? Uh, you know, I think maybe you've been listening to your divorcee coach too much. Or, yeah. and, and by the way, if you feel that, don't say it. If you feel that, just say, okay, thank you for helping me understand things I do that you interpret that way. Thank you. Or the second reaction would be, you go, wow, you know, in that particular situation she described, I really was controlling. And if that's the case, that's what you say. You say, you know what? I didn't realize it, but now that you explained it to me, I can see how that was controlling. I thank you for teaching me about that. I'm sorry I did that. Forgive me. Then you don't beat yourself up about it. You don't try to explain it. You don't, you don't try to say, but you know, I only did that because that's the way my dad treated my mom. You don't make any explanation whatsoever. And you don't beat yourself up like, oh, I'm terrible. I'm evil. Why didn't I know better? Don't do that either. And don't keep on saying over and over and over again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, because all of those things work against you. When you admit, right. when, when she says something and you can see it and say, you know, you're right. I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't realize that, but I can see it now. And I won't do that again. And then drop it at that. Now, if she wants to beat on it for a while, let her beat on it. But don't argue back at her and don't say much more except, okay, I'm listening. I'm listening. That's where you kind of defang the other person. And in doing that, she's probably going to bring up some things you really did wrong because I'm quite sure you're not perfect. But by dealing with it this way, what you're really doing is pulling the fangs out of this thing. You know, the, the teeth, you're pulling it out because you're not fighting, you're listening, you're being calm and you're being strong. And again, don't accept responsibility for anything you didn't do. So if you hear her say something like that and you think, I, I think that's crazy, don't say it's crazy. You just go, well, thank you for helping me understand the way you feel about that. That's how you can hear and at the same time show strength. Now, when you say, okay, she's pretty aloof, 
if you think about it, she's living in the same house with you, right? Right. Okay. If <laughs> That's actually probably, and of course I'm not God, all I can tell you is the probability, not the absoluteness, but that's probably a way to keep her defenses up where she doesn't let herself start thinking positive thoughts about you. In other words, to continue doing what she's doing. So rather than reacting to it negatively, okay, because if it's, if it's like a buffer, okay, being aloof is like having this little moat in front of her castle, you know, keep you away from her emotionally. Don't react to it negatively. Still be polite. Still be kind like you're still living in the same house. And so if you're both sitting in the living room watching TV and you get up to go get a Coke, you, you can be polite and say, hey, I'm going to get a Coke. Would you like one? And if she mm. says, you're manipulating me, say, sorry, I asked. Then don't do it again. If she says, yes, bring me a Coke, then bring her a Coke. But you don't defend yourself. Even if she says, that's manipulative. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I won't, uh, I won't make that mistake again. Thank you for telling me. And you don't do it facetiously. And you don't do it angrily. And you don't do it in a way that invites a, a fight. What you do is you just keep pulling those teeth. <laughs> okay? Just keep pulling those teeth. <laughs> so that you can that aloofness finally starts going away because she'll see she doesn't have to protect herself from you. Now, the fact that she had the divorce papers drawn up and put them on the shelf and left them there. I like that. That's a whole lot better than if she acted on them. Right. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Can I tell you absolutely what that means? No, but what it sounds like is that she's having some hesitation. Good. Don't push it. Don't push it. Just enjoy it. And let it go on. Keep doing all the things we talk about. Be the safe place, work on the pies, those kinds of things. Be very careful, particularly because she's being so aloof. Be very careful not to do or say anything that you think she might see as manipulative. Be very careful about that. But you can be polite. You can be kind. You can be nice. Those kinds of things. If you're watching a TV show, watching a Big Bang Theory and something's funny, you can laugh. <laughs> it's Okay. <laughs> Just be the, the, the best you you can be without putting pressure on her. The good news for you is she's still in the house. That means that even though she's being aloof, a possibility exists. The other good thing for you is that she put those papers on the shelf. I'm glad she did. I hope she leaves them there. Right. Okay. Well, she just still does talk about divorce. Uh, so, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. hurts when I hear that. And sure I know she has a long-distance relationship with her L.O., and so mm -hmm. she did travel this past weekend three hours to go see him. So, you know, yeah. I, just, I don't know what that means. But Well, I don't know what that means either, but let me go ahead and talk about that then a little bit. Um, I know it hurts when she talks about divorce. I do understand that. Try not to react any more than you have to, okay? As it, when it comes to now the fact that she's living in the house with you, but she's still going to see the LO, we call that a thing called the Valley. Have you heard me talk about the Valley before? Yes. Okay. Let me just go for those who are listening that are not familiar with that. The Valley is when a person doesn't feel they have to change any behavior because they kind of have the best of both worlds. I'm able to live here with you, which means I'm saving money, blah, 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 blah. But I'm also able to also go see him. So I've kind of got the best of the world, both worlds. We call that the valley because in the valley, people typically don't feel compelled to make a decision one way or the other, which might be the reason that those divorce papers are still up there on the shelf. The valley can actually be a good thing if you're strong enough to handle it. In other words, you can, you can let that happen for a while 
because at least she's still in the house and at least you're having some kind of interaction with each other and you're hoping for the opportunity that as you continue to work on the pies, you continue to be the safe place that, that that's going to begin to crack some of her armor. Yet there comes a time when staying in the Valley is going to be destructive either to you or to her, or do you have, do you have children? Yes. Okay. Or destructive to the children. And sometimes that's when you have to finally draw the line and say, okay, I can't leave this. For example, you know, if she, it does help some that he's three hours away. That means she can't have ample access to him, but let's just say he was living, you know, three blocks over instead of three hours away. There'd finally come a time when you could, you would be like, I can't live like this anymore. She's living in my house and, and she's, and I can't, it's tearing me apart. I can't live like that. So if it comes to destructive to you, it's time to end the valley. Or if it becomes destructive to the children, it's time to end the valley. Or if it becomes destructive to her, what I mean is that her behavior continues to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Then at some point, there's time for you to end the valley. And ending the valley basically says, without being mean or angry or anything else like that, is when you finally say, well, here's a boundary I'm going to have to bring into place. If you have any more contact with him, then you can't live here anymore. Now, understand that whenever you finally draw that line, she's likely going to make a decision, and that decision might not be the one that you want. In other words, she might have the divorce, divorce papers served. On the other hand, right. she may tell the other guy, this is over. So it's always a risk. When you finally say, I'm putting an end to this, I'm going to build a boundary that stops the valley, there's always a risk, and it may not go your way. So that's why if you can live in it for a while, okay, but at the point where – it's destructive to you, your kids, or to her. You have to just go, okay, this may not work like I want it to, but it's what I need to do, and I'm going to go ahead and put this boundary in place and make that happen. One other just piece of advice, and again, as you know, these are all your decisions. You have to make your own decisions. I don't make your decisions for you. I can't make your decisions for you. I don't live with the consequences you do. Therefore, you've got to make the decisions. But it might be something like this. If, if indeed, say, for example, she decided to go ahead and pursue the divorce or you put up the boundary. Finally, you know, you can't keep being in contact with him and live here. And she says, fine, I'm going to divorce. That's when, and I'm saying this, I think you probably have already heard me say this, but I'm saying it for the other people out there listening. That's when you might do something like, okay, you know, I really don't want a divorce. I love you. But if that's how you choose to pursue, then it's certainly you're right. And you say this very calmly, very gently. You don't make it like a threat. You don't make it like an argument. And you say, of course, you understand now that I'll have to get an attorney as well. And whatever he or she guides me to do is what I'm going to do. I apologize in advance if someone that's going to make you angry. But understand, I don't want to make you angry. I'd like to save the marriage. But if you pursue that course, if you decide to do that, then I'll be forced to do the other. And I'm not saying this is a threat. I just want to be honest up front so that later you won't say, well, why didn't you tell me? I'm just trying to be honest. So if you do, in other words, what you're letting her know without threatening her, you're letting her know, okay, if you're going to do this. It's not going to be as easy as you think. I'm going to have my attorney. I'm going to follow what my attorney's advice is and do the things he or she says I should do. Now we hope it doesn't come to that, but it's still a way. And Alice, by the way, did that to me when I divorced her back in 1984. When I divorced her, she did that, and I became very angry with her and super angry at her attorney. 
uh, <laughs> she stood her ground. And while in the short term, it made me really, really mad with her. In the long term, it actually led me to respect her a lot more. So that ultimately, mm-hmm. it was one of the factors that actually brought me back. Now, I've talked about a gazillion different things. I'm sorry. I talked about a lot more than your issue because of other people listening out there. So did I ever, <laughs> did I ever cover what you really wanted to know? Uh, no, you, you did. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll, I'll let you go so you can talk to somebody else. Well, okay. Thank you, and you take care of yourself, all right? Have a good evening out there. Okay. Well, thank you, and we'll be back on the radio again next week. My hour's just about up, and rather than trying to take another call because I don't have much time, I'll go ahead and say thank you for listening, and keep tuning in to the Dr. Joe Show as we talk about love and relationships. Have a good evening.